He's hold it. Straight in for Rory McIlroy. Shane Lowry is an open champion. Tiger completes one of the greatest comebacks in Masters history. Hi everyone, welcome to the Talk Birdie to Me podcast. I hope you're all keeping well and enjoyed the golf over the weekend. It's great to see Padraig Harrington post another top 10 on the European Tour. And of course Paul Casey getting back into the mix for Ryder Cup selection with a very impressive win. One cannot forget the chaos that unfolded at the Farmers Insurance in Tory Pines with Patrick Reed uh, running away with a victory and obviously the rules controversy that he's no stranger to. This week on the podcast, I am joined by professional golfer with over 10 years experience on the European Tour and now general manager of Douglas Golf Club, John McHenry. John has an absolute wealth of knowledge in the game and it was a very enjoyable close on hour picking his brain from his own incredible amateur success, moving on to his wins on the Challenge Tour and playing as a European Tour professional and now working as general manager in Douglas Golf Club and the work he is doing to encourage the next generation to get involved in the game and also that improved sense of community that is going on with the incredible club that is Douglas. So that's it for me. Enjoy the show. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. We're joined by professional golfer and general manager of Douglas Golf Club, John McHenry. How are you keeping, John? Great, thanks Shane, and yourself? Uh, very good, thanks for coming on the show. It's obviously a strange time at the moment for you, uh, especially Douglas Golf Club, normally such a busy place. How are you finding it at the moment? Yeah, look, I think there's two sides to it. I mean, it gives us an opportunity to get in on the golf course to try and do some outstanding work, um, you know, with nobody around. But the other side of it too is that, you know, Douglas is a very busy club. It's a very social club. There's a lot of older members who use it as a social outlet. Um, and there's no doubt about it that a busy club, you know, people are a lot more motivated. There's a lot more energy in the place. Uh, you know, they're t- in, in, particularly at the moment, the, the weather's poor. And I think that, um, you know, days can be long and dark and dreary. But, uh, you know, hopefully there's, there, there's something around the corner and we're all, you know, hoping now that uh, this will be the last lockdown. Yeah, certainly. And you mentioned there, Douglas is normally such a busy golf club and I suppose there's such a great membership there, especially with some of the youth prospects that are coming through. How have you found your time there over the last number of years? And obviously there's the gym after being put in place and there's a new clubhouse, which is absolutely magnificent. How are you finding all that so far? Yeah, good. You know, it's been a busy period. I think the club is very ambitious. Um, you know, I think that really we're kind of trying to look at look at the future and future proofing ourselves in areas we're, we're trying to listen to the membership in terms of understanding what their requirements might be but at the same time uh, looking at the younger generation coming through now what are their needs you know uh, you know because they're they're quite different to the traditional needs of a golf club and I think that we're, we're trying to move slowly in that direction we obviously tremendously respect the um, traditions of the club and and, and obviously uh, you know the wisdom of the older membership, but at the same time, the future is the younger generation, and it's it's to try and marry that balance. You may find yourselves as a bit of an outlier in this, obviously, because you do have a large junior cohort there. But how have you found that? I suppose you've had such a broad eye on the game for so many years now, in terms of attracting that younger generation to the game. Look, I think it's hugely important. I mean, we we make no bones about it that we, we put a lot of emphasis on the junior programme. We put a lot of emphasis on members' children coming through the programme and trying to retain them. You know, it's very easy to attract a juvenile. Um, it's very it's it's a little bit more difficult to retain that juvenile into the junior status and, and even more difficult again when they move into the ordinary status uh, as an ordinary member. Um, 
But having said that, I think that, you know, we've tried to layer up, we've tried to look at all aspects of how a juvenile might enjoy themselves in, in the golf club, not necessarily the golf course. Um, and I think that if, if, if we can keep that, the, the, the club experience broad enough um, and, and appealing enough, you know, for example, we, ch- we changed our, um, our caterer here there recently, and we found really that there's been a good bounce in the clubhouse that a lot of the junior members now find the clubhouse a lot fresher, airier, um, you know, more colourful, more dynamic, less intimidating. And I think that, um, you know, across the board, the opening now of the gym with Peter O'Keefe, a young guy himself, um, very energetic, very focused. Um, you know, we just find that, that, that suddenly the juniors and the juveniles are supporting this. And then if we get down to the younger age, you know, we, we have a good, strong, uh, senior cup program but uh, w- tailored with that is us then marrying uh, and working with the juveniles in order that they can aspire to move up the ranks and to play at senior level but more importantly feed down through the ranks their experience that they have participating in, in panel participating on senior cup teams so that you know we build a broader base that's coming through on a regular basis just jumping in there in your point about the new clubhouse and the new caterers, just how proud are you of that as a member yourself of Douglas Golf Club, obviously an honorary member, in fact, but it's just such a beautiful, I suppose, and modern building. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I think that the membership took a long time really to decide exactly what they wanted. Some certain cohorts wanted a brand new clubhouse, others wanted to retain the old structure. Um, and once it was decided that we would try and retain the old look of the golf club it was then a case of getting in and seeing what was required now there was a lot of structural issues but i think really what we have is we've we've got a great balance i think if you were to come down over the hill 20 years ago the clubhouse that you see today is pretty much the exact same look uh, of, of the clubhouse that you, you would have seen 20 years ago but realistically you know where we had a drive around the clubhouse before and where we had no we say patio area we now have one, and, and I think certainly the biggest change inside is that where you had a big open expanse of room, um, which in many ways is very, very intimidating for people. You now have a uh, more of a pod system, more of a structured system whereby it's uh, a lot more colorful. The lights can be themed to certain areas, uh, and more importantly, we can pod areas so that it, it, it's, it's less intimidating, it's more intimate, and I think that you know, the feedback we've got so far and, you know, we, we have Dave Farrell and Kat Farrell who have come up to us now as well um, and Double Door Limited. And I think that, um, you know, the, the quality and standard of the food offering is is significant. So we're, we're literally posing questions to the membership. Well, look, you know, you might want to become a member of a gym or you want, might want to go out and find dine. Well, why don't you consider Douglas as, as, that, as that place rather than necessarily... Um, you know the uh, the village, uh, and I think that w- what we're finding now is is that they're embracing that and they're bringing their friends up with them. And, it, and you know, as I sort of said, uh, good energy is positive energy. And I think that you know it, it, we're finding that there's a bit of a spring in the step. Now we're in lockdown at this moment in time, but hopefully going forward, you know, it it will all build into our, our our bigger vision really of a very dynamic broad club. I really like that there when you talked about coming up for the gym or the fine dining, that it's not just about the golf and kind of creating that sense of broader community there. Just how excited are you for Douglas Golf Club in the years to come? Uh, look, I'm very excited. I, I, I think it, Douglas is very fortunate, OK? It, it's in the middle of the city, you know, where uh, historically 
you know, everybody, when they talked about golf courses, they probably would rate a golf course. And that was how you determined how good a golf venue was, you know. Now I think all of that has changed. I think Douglas has, has very clearly said that, no, we, we have to be much broader than just simply a golf course. Now we're doing a lot of work on the golf course. And I think that, you know, in years to come, uh, we will have a, a really strong championship golf course. Um, you know, we, we, we're, we've already got eyes on certain things there. But I think more importantly, um, you know, the energy in the club comes out of the club, comes out of the social aspect of it. It comes out of the, the clubhouse itself. And I think what we have now is we've got a, we've got a great experience for anybody coming to the club, whether they're a member, they're a guest, or they're a visitor. And uh, you know, I think that that's very very important because um, you know, as I as I would say that you know, we have a lot of elderly membership now at this point in time who come up here to socialise and they see this as a social outlet for them for a few hours every day. And that's as important to us as a member who's coming up here to play eighteen holes six times a week. You know. You talked there, John, about the experience for members and coming up not only for the golf, but the social aspect. And your experience in the game spans a number of decades now. And just bring us back to your amateur days beginning out in the game of golf, which obviously culminated in a Walker Cup appearance in 1987 in Sunningdale. Just how was your early years and how important was golf to you as you grew up and developed in it? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I played, I played a lot of sports when I was growing up and um, I, I participated in a lot of different um, activities. You know, I think that my father was a golfer. He introduced me to the game. It was something that I took to fairly quickly. Um, you know, I was lucky enough. I got involved with the Irish boys early on. I was playing with them when I was 16. I also won an Irish Youths title when I was 16. And I think that probably propelled me a little bit. Um, so I, I spent probably the next four or five years, you know, in around Ireland playing the the junior circuit and being quite successful with it. Uh, you know, I think that golf was a different game back then. You know, the, the courses weren't as manicured as they are today. The technology certainly wasn't anywhere near as good as it is today. The um, you, you pretty much try to find your own swing and trying to find something that was repeatable. But, you know, I mean, you, you grounded out and you were either up for the competition or you weren't. And, uh, you know, I, I was lucky enough in, in 1980. I went to college in America. It was a good experience for me. Um, and then I came home and in 1986, I won the South and I won the Irish Amateur. And I think that that probably propelled me then on to a Walker Cup place. I had played with Ireland seniors in 85 and I was playing Europeans and all that sort of stuff. So. You know, there was nothing intimidating about a Walker Cup. I, I, I would have known all the, the players who I was playing with. I would have competed regularly against them. And it was a good experience. It was in Sunningdale, um, you know, and uh, it, it was a great experience. I, I would probably say that my, my better ex team experiences were, were with the Irish teams. We won, I won a, a European Youths with Ireland. I won a European Senior title with Ireland. Um, and I think that that was very very enjoyable um the walker cup was enjoyable probably a little you know it, it was a great experience and obviously i suppose when you when you rank amateur golf it's the highest thing that you can do on this side of the world um but I, but i would probably rank you know winning winning titles with ireland probably higher than that but but you know it look it was a great experience and i suppose it then catapulted me on to exploring my own boundaries um at that point i was probably you know, maybe it's top two or three uh, uh, amateurs in Europe. So it was kind of a case of, well, how far can I go and see if I, if I can make things as a professional or not? Yeah, you obviously list there a lot of success and picking up various titles throughout your time. But just one part of your journey there and where your game obviously holding a lot of skills would have been in America. Would you say it's a similar experience to what the young players get now over there and just 
a lot of golf and I suppose it's more about the golf than the the experience in the classroom. Yeah, I think to, to a degree, I think that, you know, um, when I went to, uh, I was only the second person ever from Ireland to go over there on a golf scholarship, Philip Walsh and had gone a couple of years before me. Um, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of knowledge about the golf colleges, what was a good golf college, what was not a, go- a good golf college. Uh, Philip would have gone to Oklahoma State, which was a good co- golf college. I went to a place called William & Mary in, in Virginia. It was more of an academic college. It had a golf program. I think if I was being critical, uh, I, I should have gone to a stronger golf college uh, with, with, with probably more recognizable tutors and so on. I think that would have brought my game on even more. Um, but having said that, look, it was it was a great experience. It was, it was a good experience in resilience. It was a good experience in understanding, you know, going away, preparing for tournaments, you know, not playing in your home venue uh, on a regular basis. All of those things help you to become a stronger competitor. But I think that... Uh, you know, it was just another stepping stone for me. But I think probably what, what I would have brought out um, from America was very good um, golf skills management, uh, time management. Uh, and I think certainly uh, the, being able to cope with adversity, being, being able to cope with different golf courses and the challenges that, that each different golf course presents. So as you decided to delve into the pro ranks after your successful amateur career, how important would you say mental toughness was there as you talked about your, I suppose, the skills you learned from the US? Uh, look, it was hugely important. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're going to, if you, you know, you would regularly see an author of amateurs turning professional and, and, and probably the biggest hurdle that they face are in the first three or four years, you know, to, to be successful in, in, a, in the professional game, you need to have a lot of money behind you. Uh, you, you you need to have a, obviously have a very good game. You need to be very resilient because you are you could be a very big fish in a very small pond in Ireland, whereas you are a very small fish in a huge pond on the European Tour or, or on the PGA Tour. You know, and and you know, lots of people fighting for only a very few spots. So, um, like resilience would have counted. I think I got the forty ninth um, tour card at that time, and there was fifty tour cards, and I, I got it in a playoff. In my in my first year, and I think that that was very important. That I, I came straight out of amateur golf and went straight into the European Tour. I you know you see an awful lot of players who never who can never make that breakthrough, and you know ultimately they just fade away. Um, so it gave me a platform to keep going. Um, you know I think that there were there were strengths and weaknesses to my game. I was a very good putter as an amateur, and I wasn't a particularly good putter as as a professional. I certainly wasn't at at the professional standard. And I think that that ultimately would have eaten through the confidence of my game. But I think that, you know, you, you have to be resilient. You have to give yourself every opportunity. Um, and I think ultimately you also have to be realistic that, you know, you're either going to make it or you're not going to make it. And, um, you know, that, that takes time, you know, obviously, you know, it's not, it's not easy to, to recognize that, you know, you're not, you're not going to make it, but, but at the same time, you know, these are life skills and, and certainly, you know, my time on the European tour, I would have carried through me with some very, very stressful moments. Um, and I think that uh, they've helped me in no end. You mentioned there about having that mental toughness and resilience, and you certainly had it as you lasted on the European tour and played for over a decade. What were some of your highlights? Obviously, the standout for many would be the 1998 Irish Open in Druid's Glen, where you finished third. But well, would that be similar for you? Where do you have other lasting memories? Yeah, look, I, I, I mean, I think probably um, early doors. Uh, I won three times in the cha- on, on the on the mini tour and the challenge tour to to get myself a card in, in the year. So, 
you know, at that time, if you won three events on the Challenge Tour, you automatically went straight across into the European Tour. So I had had a, a couple of very average years on the European Tour, had fallen down into the Challenge Tour, and I went out to the Challenge Tour, and I won three events, and I was back on the European Tour, I think, by around June. Um, now, that, that, that in itself was, was a great fill-up for me because, you know, I, I knew that I was, a, I was a higher standard necessarily than the Challenge Tour. The challenge then was to see, could I be a, a high enough standard to be a very successful uh, European Tour player? You know, again, I think the circumstances, you know, come and, and with you and, and don't with you. I think I would have I would have shot some extremely low scores, but I probably never had the consistency over four rounds. Um, so I think the, the highs and the frustrations are playing, um, you know, some great, great golf, uh, but not necessarily backing it up. Uh, I think for me personally, I always challenge an awful lot of my energy into the Irish Opens. I, I love them, whereas a lot of the Irish players kind of half dreaded that week because of the, the level of scrutiny. But I, I used to love it. I, you know, I, I was in contention a number of times in Mount Julius in the Irish Open, didn't didn't deliver there. And then you you, you mentioned Druid's Glen. Um, you know, probably a golf course that I particularly didn't like. It didn't suit my eye. But at the same time, I was in a good vein of form and I was able to carry it through for the four rounds. I think I would have regrets on certain things that were done the last round, um, you know, but at the same time, uh, you know, finishing third behind uh, Montgomery and Carter, you know, it, it, it was it was a decent result. And I think that, um, you know, again, it gave me another platform for another year. Yeah, certainly. It was obviously great memories to do that in Ireland, obviously huge home support. And looking at the tour as a whole and how it's developed in your time since your playing days, and there's obviously the distance, the base, we, or you've mentioned that there's so many, how the game has developed, it's now more global and attracting new people. And you see even last night in the US, uh, one of the winners from the college event was wearing a hoodie. And what are some of the big kind of challenges or changes that golf need to adapt to, to continue to encourage people or even bring it onto the main tour, some of the big changes that you found? Look, I, I, I think... And, and, and I, I think it's fantastic. I think technology has moved on massively, okay? And I think that um, the knowledge of, you know, what's required, you know, anatomically, so for your body to to actually produce. So where in my time, we'd say the, the best golfers were about 5'10", 5'11", in terms of heights. The best golfers now are about 6'3", 6'4". They've high, uh, you know, leverages and you know they they can they can bomb the ball a long long way they're being told they they are basically being told to get as fit and as strong as you possibly can and that the equipment then that will be put will be given to them will match their sequence personally i have problems with the length of the ball at the moment um you know i feel that a lot of the really really great golf courses around the world the ones to take creativity and shot making skills are being made redundant because a lot of them are landlocked um I have written to the RNA about this, about, you know, there are very some some very simple things that could be done to help alleviate things like that. So even if you didn't do anything with the ball or the, or the driver, if the height of a tee peg was reduced down to an inch or if the maximum loft on, on, on of, of a club was, you know, 56 degrees um, and a certain amount of bounce on it, um, these are all little things that could help mitigate towards, um, you know, these great golf courses effectively becoming redundant. Having said that, look, you know, I think the golf, the game of golf is moving. You, you, you've got the rich players, the PGA Tours and all that, you know, who are dominating the game. But I think that more importantly, um, you know, in, in recent years, I tried to bring in a short game format into the European Tour. 
again, this this meets really with more with where I am with 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 golf clubs. You have to stay current. You have to stay relevant to what's ahead of you. And while you you have a traditional model um, in front of you, I don't see any reason why you couldn't have a secondary or even a third model, maybe a shorter model. In a, in a real world or maybe a virtual model that could run parallel with the existing models. And I think that in, in that context, you can captivate a bigger market and even a market of people who, who are very in, into games, but not necessarily into the physical game of golf. And I think that the biggest thing about here is about growing your audience and making golf relevant. And I think that, um, you know, what, what we found with most sports nowadays is that they, they, their one business model that they have is very successful, but they cannot fall back on anything else other than that model. And I think that unless they're prepared to change their thought process or, and their ways, I think that golf, a little bit like other sports, you know, is it runs the risk of of losing relevance. Very interesting there when you talked about, I suppose, how the game has changed about the 56 degree wedge to driver debate. And just to jump in on comparing your playing days to the current players, would you say that they are miles apart? And I spoke with Mark Murphy uh, two podcasts ago, and he was talking about, he used to go to Waterville, sharpen the grooves and get creative in the bunker. Now players, as you said, going to the gym, it's all about ball speed, club head speed, hitting the driver as far as possible. Would you say there is that huge disparity between the game in the 90s and the current game? Oh, absolutely. I would say that the game in the 90s, like if you, you only have to look at the swings of the, of, the, of the successful players in the 80s and the 90s, you know, um, and you look, you look at the, we say the best players of that era and how different all their swings were. Now you look at the best players and they all swing the club pretty much the exact same way. I think that the second thing there is, um, you know, the, 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 the technology was much more inconsistent. So therefore people had to become far more creative with, with their shot making skills. I mean, we played, and it sounds funny, okay, but we, like we would have played, you know, and, you know, early in the day, the, the golf ball would be cold. You'd have golf balls in your pocket trying to keep them warm and the ball would fly low. And then eventually start, uh, as, as you got more speed into the ball would fly a bit higher. You know, nowadays guys are coming out there, you know, they're in the gym for an hour or two or three and, and you know, they're out there and they're bombing the golf course from, from the word go, you know. Um, strategy was a, was a massive part of the game uh, way back. Now strategy all evolves around chipping and putting. I mean, I, I've done a fair bit of commentary in the Irish Open and at times you're aghast watching what's happening. You know, your you're guys are taking out driver knowing that they're going to run out of fairway, but it's, it seems to be just how close can I get it to the green? I'll take out my my sharp sandwich and I just control the ball with with that you know in my time it was about finding fairways it was about finding greens and regulation and capitalizing on it that way that that all seems to be gone now speaking of that creativity with a wedge and probably the most creative that of anyone to play the game would have been Seve you had the opportunity to play with him how great of a character was he Alex Seve was a great guy I think that there was enough you know, I mean, he fell from grace, um, you know, very quickly. And I think that it was very sad because in his prime, um, Seve had the charisma, he had the game, he had the attitude, and he, he carried the game of golf really on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, you know, uh, he, he was a flawed genius in many ways, but at the same time, um, he, he was a brilliant person because even when he was playing poorly, he would rock up at an event knowing he was playing poorly. He would smile. He would sign autographs. He, he would do the interviews. He understood how important he was for that event, regardless of whether he was competitive or not. 
you know, then when he was competitive, you, you could just see that he, there was never, there was never anything other than another opportunity to do something. And, and I think that in that sense, you know, probably one of the most resilient individuals I would have ever come across. You know, I, I, I was very fortunate. I probably played with him about six or seven times. I got to know him personally. Um, I would have been there at the opening of the Heritage. You know, we had a good long chat there when he was involved at the, at the design of it. You know, so to, to see him fall, it was very, very sad. But I think in terms of the impact that he made on European golf, he got European golfers to believe that they could be competitive. He was the guy who went across to America and showed them that, that look, you know, you don't need to fear anything with these Americans. They're, they're, they're very beatable. Uh, and, and, you know, he did it with a smile and he did it in a swashbuckling way that, you know, I think the Americans were envious of him. You mentioned how he was a player that led a continent of Europe to believe that they could compete. And a player, I suppose, that changed golf on a worldwide scale was Tiger Woods. And you also had the opportunity to play with him, if I'm correct. So how was that or, like, I suppose, the impact he's had on the game? Yeah, look, I, 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 I remember playing with Tiger. We were, we, myself and Paul Way were drawn with him in the Johnny Walker Classic out in Asia. And um, at that time, Tiger was still an amateur. I think he might have won a couple, he might have won a couple of US amateurs at that point. You know, he was an up-and-coming player. You know, we had heard an awful lot about him. I think, if I'm being absolutely honest with you, um, after the round, you know, myself and Paul would have sat down and we, we spoke about what we thought, we, like, he, there's no doubt about it, he was a good player, but he wasn't anything exceptional. He wasn't something that, you know, you, you were kind of going, oh my God, this guy is already a superstar. You know, we, we thought, you know, he, 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 had, he had good management skills. He, he had his sound game. You know, he was very erratic and was making silly little mistakes. You know, no, this can only be a moment in time. It's, it's a snapshot, you know. But I think certainly the, the feeling was, yeah, he's good. But but how good is he? We, we we didn't know. I mean, certainly I would have I would have encountered more impressive people. I mean, Darren Clark in his prime, I would I would put as probably being one of the most impressive golfers that you know early doors. That in terms of ball striking skills, in terms of just being able to completely overpower a golf course, Tiger Tiger certainly you know following that, I certainly would have played in quite a number of events that he would have been playing in. And, um, you know, obviously you watch him progress. Uh, I think I think what, what we have found with Tiger is that he probably had the best clutch short game in the entire world for a long, long period of time. He probably had the best mind. Um, he was the best iron striker. Certainly, wasn't, certainly was nowhere near the best driver of a golf ball. But I think that, you know, most players have flaws. And I think that, you know, Tiger's greatest strength really was that he... He was relentless in constantly giving everything to every tournament. And, you know, I think it probably took him, I think after about 15 years in tour, he still had only missed three cuts, you know. So, you know, it, it was 100% into everything he was doing. And I think that was probably one of his great traits. And interesting that you talk about his progression and how you analysed him. And now in the last number of years, the role you play with RT and the commentary that you do, and analyzing, analyzing other players is obviously a big part of that job. Would you say you were very analytical throughout your own career? Yeah, I think I probably was. I think possibly too analytical. You know, you you know, you you you've got to have a quiet mind in golf. Um, uh, you know, I think that I was. I, I've always been a person who keeps striving for improvement. I've always been someone who, like, keeps challenging and keeps sort of saying, you know, you you've got to keep motivating yourself. You've got to be able to get up every morning and, and keep motivating yourself. You know, and I think that, um, 
you know, I, I certainly would have would have spent a lot of my career, you know, constantly looking for improvements, looking at different ways that I could do things. Um, but I think fundamentally, you know, if you're going to become a really good professional golfer, you have to have a very, very strong uh, putting game. And I think that, you know, I, I spent a considerable amount of time on that and I, and I, I just wasn't consistent enough. And I think that, um, you know, the, the best players, it doesn't matter what, how, how they strike the golf ball, the best players are the best putters as well. Very interesting, the analytical role you play in kind of having that look and kind of swapping sports for a second. And I've encountered your son, Alex, thankfully not as an opposition player on the rugby field. But many of the listeners that are interested in rugby would be aware that he's a professional rugby player at Munster Rugby. And obviously he's out to forge his own path and you played golf. He's a rugby player. But what are some of the kind of traits that you were able to like the information that you're able to give to him as he's on that journey? Obviously talked about you were analytical, the kind of relentlessness to succeed and working on your putting. And I suppose just some of the challenges that he's going to face in his career throughout trying to forge to be a successful professional sports person. Look, I think first of all, he's my own son, and you and I'm and I'm tremendously proud of him, as I am all my children. You know, um, as a parent, all you want is for them to enjoy themselves and go and express themselves. You want to give them the confidence to be able to go out and challenge new boundaries and have confidence. Now, just to to, to do that in a very elite environment, you also have to be very disciplined. You've got to be very structured. You know. You know, and I suppose really any any feedback that I can give to him really is that, um, you know, even when I was playing with the greatest players in the world, it, it was only very, very tiny margins in, in, in a number of areas that made the difference. So if I was playing with Tiger Woods, he would be marginally better in one area. He'd be marginally better in another area. He'd be marginally better in another area. That might, be, that might be two shots in a round. That could be eight shots in a tournament. That could be the difference between first and, uh, you know, maybe maybe 15th or 16th or even 20th position, okay? And and, and really, you know, I think an offer of, you know, good good players, good, regardless of what sport they're playing in, they get overwhelmed with the, the enormity of the occasion, the enormity of the, the size differential or the performance differential. And in reality, it's not that far away from them um, and it's to have the confidence to express themselves and to keep growing um, to find those lines and to find th- that difference that makes them you know I think that as we as we all get older we, we, we get slightly more conservative and I think that my, my whole thing really is is to try and don't don't get wrapped up and, and find that you're, you're not, you know you're a frustrated animal doing nothing you know keep expressing yourself keep believing in what you're doing, keep going through the processes and keep trying to find those fine little margins that, that will separate you. But you've got to enjoy it. You know, uh, like if Alex is a professional rugby player, if Alex decided to, to stop tomorrow, he would still be my son. I would, I would view him no differently. It would be a great challenge. I, I think it's fantastic that he has the confidence to go after a, a, a very, you know, uh, what, what is, a, you know, the likelihood of success is very small, but but you, you have to have those goals in life. And I think regardless of how he does, he, he will come up with a lot of skills, a lot of time management skills, a lot of structural skills, a lot of ambition skills that, that will help him for later on in his life. He's obviously part of a team culture, so he's surrounded with a lot of like-minded people all trying to achieve a, achieve a common goal in there, I suppose, pushing each other, competing. 
how different is that for your own career where I suppose you were out in your own it was you were a one-man show and you had to try and surround yourself with people that had your best interests and heart was that something you'd say is quite a struggle for young golfers I, I, I think so I think I think probably one of one of the greatest um, um, hardships for any any sportsman is time management um, you know you might you might be busy for three four hours of the day five hours of the day whatever um, but you have a lot of time to yourself yeah you, in, in isolation you have a lot of time um, you could be 3,000 miles away from home you could have missed a cut you have to learn how to be able to be happy in your own environment and even in a team environment you have to be comfortable in your own skin and I think that probably one of the great things is that you know and that's where I think America helped to break a lot of that I, I I left home when I was 18 years of age went out to America for four years you know I'm not saying it was easy and there was a lot of adjustment in it but but certainly I learned how to be comfortable in my own skin and how to keep myself entertained and I think that you know a lot of a lot of really good players uh, um, you know, they 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 they, they come into environment where they they're used to success, where they're used to getting things their own way, and suddenly they meet adversity, and suddenly they meet people who are just as ambitious and possibly even more talented than they are, and then they have to cope with the downside of of not performing as well as they as, as they feel that they should be able to perform, and I think that you know that alone, you know, it 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 very often you see the middle of the road guy. Being the most successful professional because he's the guy who's who's already had the knocks coming up, who's already used to gr grafting and grinding, whereas the superstar just simply can't cope with that adversity or, 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 or that time alone. Adversity is something a lot of players face throughout their career and I suppose a huge pressure or drive for them in if you're a European or American player is to make it as far as the Ryder Cup. And that was something you were involved with in 2006 during your tenure as director of golf at the K Club. How important for that was golf, not only in Ireland, or sorry, not only Europe, but more so Ireland in terms of developing players in the following year, obviously with Harrington's major win. I know that was an impact on getting me into the game personally. How special was that to be involved in the Ryder Cup in Ireland? Look, it was hugely, it, it, it was hugely important for Ireland. I think that, um, you know, you had you had a number of of things coming together. Um, you had Doctor Michael Smurfit, who owned the K Club, um, who had a strong relationship with the European Tour, and 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 around him you had the likes of Dermot Desmond, JP McManus, all all keen golfers, but all people with deep pockets who saw the opportunity to bring a Ryder Cup to Ireland and backed it and promoted it and pushed it and so on. You then had a venue which was a world-class venue um you know like not many people will you know might, may or may not remember that 2006 Ryder cup but you know like we had about 90 degree weather and blistering sunshine the week beforehand and then on the the night before the opening ceremony we had a hurricane that came through the site and uh, it, it blew down a number of trees one across the ninth green um it it, it did an awful structural damage we had to evacuate the course we couldn't allow anybody on the course um, and the opening practice rounds until uh, until um, you know eleven o'clock in the day, um, but the show went on. We had about seven, we had about six and a half inches of rain, you know. But the show went on, and I think that that's ultimately you know the Ryder Cup is a showpiece, and for Ireland, uh, it was a great opportunity to show 
showcase Ireland in, in, in all its best light. And that's, you know, that's everything from tradition to the fun, how, how well we generate and, and we can throw a party and celebrate and, and at the same time stage really, really big events very professionally. And I think that, um, you know, the success of the, of the Ryder Cup is really down to a lot of effort by a lot of individuals who are very invested in it. But I think more importantly, um, it, it was a backing up of a nation that were aligned towards delivering something special. And, you know, it didn't, it, it didn't matter how bad the weather was. It was the event that was the winner. And I think that even, you know, you had Darren Clark's situation coming back into play the Ryder Cup shortly after the death of his wife, Heather. And, um, you know, there, it, 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 in my mind, there, there's so many memories, but I think the overwhelming memory there is that you had people there who were trudging around in appalling weather and with smiles on their face. They, they absolutely were enjoying the moment. And I think that that was just probably, you know, the the back end of that for Ireland for an, and for Irish golf was that, you know, we, again, uh, you know, no different than Selby, that look, Ireland deserves its right to host these big events, deserves its right to stage the biggest events in the world. And I think that, you know, shortly after that, we had the Special Olympics as well. And I think, that, um, or maybe it was just before it, again, another massive success. And I think that, you know, you know it, just, it, it just catapulted us into an entirely different space. With the Ryder Cup obviously being such a great or exhibition for golf and such a showcasing of the great talent that is in the game and coming back to Adair Manor in 2026, but before that it must take place in Whistling Straits this year and with many hoping that Shane Lowry will be part of the team plans. Would you, as an analyst, would you reckon that Shane Lowry's going to make the team? I, I, I think so this time. I think that, um, I think Porrick... Um, would be wrong um, not to pick him regardless of whether he qualifies or not. I, I, and, I, and I say it for a couple of reasons. We know that Shane is an extremely good win player. Um, you know, we know, we, we know that he plays very well in uh, adverse con conditions and we know that he's a good clutch player. Uh, I think if Shane is showing form, any sort of form really um, leading into that Ryder Cup, um, whether it's, you know, through play or, or, or selection, I think he, he should be part of that team. I think the manner, he, you know, Shane's a great, I was commentating uh, when he won the Irish Open as an amateur. And I remember it was foul weather that last on, on the Sunday of that event. And I, there were a lot of very important shots that Shane had to play coming down the closing stretch of that last round. And, you know, when you're when you're an amateur, or even when you're a professional, and and you know you have such a big prize at the end at the end of the stage, um, it's very easy to be slightly conservative, and it's very easy to try and you know just take the easy route out, which is the safe shot, and then hope that you'll get away with it. You know, and I, I just I, I just was so impressed that he took on the shots, he played the right shots at the right time, and then you know I had been waiting for another big moment, and you know I mean I always won a world championship, but. I've been waiting for another big moment from Shane. And I think that, you know, last year's Open Championship victory, I'd sorry, the year before now at this stage, um, you know, it, it just showed, it, should, it just demonstrated all his talents. And I think that, um, you know, I, I think that probably amongst his peers, no one, no one was terribly surprised that he just blew the field away. Um, and especially on, on a Lynx golf course. And I think that, you know, if Shane is to stay fit for the next 20 years, there'll be plenty more open championships in him.
Certainly, I hope that uh, he definitely keeps himself in contention. Obviously, such an exciting player and one of her own is always going to get large support. But I obviously don't want to keep you too much longer. I'm taking up enough of your time here. But when you decided to step away from playing on the competitive tour, was coaching ever something you considered? Or is there any players that you're working with at the moment? Or was it always going to be that transition into the business side of golf? Look, I, I think there's two sides to that. I think I would be very interested. I, I've been, I've been um, coach, coaching and stroke mentoring with, say, Mel DC for a long, long time. Um, you know, he's a good, strong player coming up through the ranks. Um, a lot of potential, good ball striker. Um, you know, obviously, there, there's, more, there, there's more to golf than just simply striking a golf shot, um, you know. But certainly somebody who I would see has a lot of potential to move on to the next stage um, in golf. Um, you know, I, I would be very interested in golf. I think that, um, I think it, it just depends really on, on your platform. Um, you, you know, I, I would also be very interested in in the other side of it. As I said earlier, you know, I, I was looking at this short game format. I would certainly see myself as being very lateral and very progressive. Um, I just think that golf needs to be very needs to be broader than it is now. Um, you know, uh, uh, um, I was involved with the monster team. Uh, you know, and from a selection point of view, there a couple of years ago, and I and I was disappointed, if I'm being honest, that I felt that very little from a structural point of view had moved on. You know, for even from my time, you know, there there wasn't the professionalism that I would have thought would have been there, and so on. You know, so I think that, the, you know, even even Douglas is a great example. I think golf, one, one of the great things about the game of golf is, is its tradition. And, you know, everybody respects its tradition. But I think that, you know, we also need to realize that the game of golf has to move on. You know, it has to it has to make itself relevant for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, next next, next century. And I think that, you know, that's going to take some brave moves and it's going to take some forward-thinking people, and I'm not saying that I'm one of those people, but I'm, but I'm certainly backing that, and not simply a continuation of the same. Um, and I think that, um, you know, to me, that's very exciting um, because I think that, because I'm so passionate about the game, I think that that's very, very important. I think, you know, 99.9% .9 of the tour professionals that I would know, they go back into the golf in some capacity, whether it's... Um, you know, and more often than not, it's trying to be an analyst first and then and then possibly coaching and so on. Look, I, I enjoy that aspect of it. I'm, I'm intrigued by the game of golf, but I'm, but I'm probably more intrigued about where the game of golf is going to and, and safeguarding it going forward so that, you know, we have a very strong sport. It would still be a minority sport, in my opinion, but we have a, still have a very strong sport, you know, over the next 30 to 40 years. Well, John, it's obviously no harm to have people like yourself involved, obviously, with the passion that you have for it and the drive for change to keep gay or keep golf as a realistic sport that's moving with the times and making sure it's appealing for everyone. And you certainly have a well-respected voice, too, as you work with RT on a regular basis and commentating and analysing the professional ranks. I just want to finish up with that just briefly is just the enjoyment you get from that and I suppose getting to watch the next level and next generation of talent and kind of voicing your opinion. So just how do you enjoy that, I suppose, every year, the Irish Open especially? Look, I, I, I'm I'm one of golf's great fans. Um, you know, I, I, I think that I love, 
I love watching young talent come through expressing themselves in any sport. I'm, I'm a phenomenal believer that if you give young people um, the opportunity, they'll take it in spades and they'll give it back to you in spades. Um, you know, I'm not for holding on to things or, you know, you know, sort of rewarding anything. It, it, you know, I, 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 and, and each year in the Irish Open, I watch younger and younger players coming through and, you know, they all have something. They've all learned off the great players and they all have something extra to offer. I suppose the hardest part of it, too, at, at times is where you have to be critically honest about the performance of certain individuals. Um, you know, and, you know, take, for example, Rory. Rory at times can just absolutely blow you away as being the most talented golfer. Um, then at times he's also possibly one of the most wasteful golfers on a, on a golf course. Um, you know, and, and it, I suppose there's the frustration um, of him not realizing his own potential, but at the same time, I recognize that you know these are these are these are this is the way he wants to play golf for himself. You know, and and who am I to judge that? Um, so you know, there is a fine line there, um, but I think that you know, golf. The great thing about golf is that there's a number of games going on at the same time. There's there's the performance, okay. There's the mental game, and then there's there's actually. This, this strategy that's that's trying to dissect a golf course and trying to make it molded into your own eye. And I think that all of those things are, are, are very rewarding. You know, I love, as much as I, I love commenting on an Irish open, I love going to new venues and, and trying to figure out the strategy of that venue. Yeah, it's certainly very interesting. You talk there, it was, you're kind of analysing there's so much going on as to why a player's performing, why not? And it's just really interesting to hear, but I don't want to keep it too much longer. So just going to finish with some quick fire questions, if that's OK. Sure. Do you prefer links or parkland? Uh, I, I prefer links. Practice on the range or on the course? Uh, range. What age did you reach scratch? Uh, 15. Your best golf memory to date? I, I, I would imagine, you know, my, my performance in, in, in the Irish Open uh, in 98. The best Irish player you've ever played with? Uh, Darren Clark. Perfect. Well, John, thank you very much for your time today. It was an absolute pleasure to sit down and chat golf, especially with the wealth of knowledge that you do have. So thank you very much. Thank you, Shane. Thank you very much. That's it for episode 34. And I would just like to say a huge thank you again to John for his time. With John's exposure to the game of golf from playing as an analyst with RT and his own time working out in the business side of the game, it was just exceptional to sit down and pick his brain with the knowledge that he does have and the different opinions that he has and the understanding because he's been there and seen it all. So thank you again, John. Also, just a quick reminder that the website is still fully stocked with a range of crested accessories. So check out talkbirdytome.net. And that's it for this week's show. Chat soon and please talk birdie to me. He's old. Straight in for Rory McIlroy. Shane Lowry is an open champion. Tiger completes one of the greatest comebacks in Masters history.